0: I want to find the the graduates in the room again real quick. So if you need to stand up, we just raise your hand again. If you're graduates, I see where where people are. Very good. Um, I just want you to contemplate a question uh, for the next few moments. Uh, If you've just graduated high school or college, what is it, uh, if you were to paint or to sketch a picture of the life you deeply crave and the life you desire, what would that painting look like? I just want you to think about that, and and I think the rest of us can think about that alongside them, whether we're parents of the graduates, and maybe we have dreams and desires for our children as they embark on this next season of life. Uh, But even for each of us, what is it that we deeply crave? Like, if you were to paint a picture that would have the qualities of the life that you deeply crave, that you long for, like, like, what would be in there? I think that for many of us, um, that painting would include the colors of love. Uh, we wanna experience love, not not in uh, maybe the shallow iterations we sometimes experience in our life today, but a love that goes much deeper than physical touch or uh, a word. Uh, a love that probably is characterized by patience and, and kindness. A love that's characterized by um, faithfulness, a love that's characterized by um, not boasting or being proud or being rude, a a love that's not characterized by envy, a love that doesn't keep a record of wrongs, a a love that probably uh, rejoices in the truth, uh, a love that always trusts and always hopes and always perseveres. I'm guessing on your painting, you'd have this pure form of love. You probably also would have a, a pure form of joy, a joy that transcends, um, pleasure for momentary happiness, uh, a joy that transcends sorrow and suffering. You might have on that canvas not only love and joy, but, but peace. Not just the absence of conflict, that's nice, right? But this deeper sense of wholeness and wellness. Now, now how these things are expressed beyond that, you may not know, you not, may not know how to articulate it, but I'm guessing on this canvas, you would, you would want to experience a life of love and joy and peace, a life where you experience good things, a life that is characterized by people treating one another well, maybe with gentleness and kindness, a, a world that's characterized, a life that's characterized, even by people being faithful to you and you being faithful to them. And I'm guessing even the colors of this canvas would include maybe just some diligence. Maybe we would call it self-control where you are intentional about what you do and you hope others are intentional about their actions toward you. I would bet if you were to paint a canvas, it would include the love, the joy, the peace, the patience, the kindness, the goodness, the gentleness, the faithfulness, the self-control. And yet as much as that resonates, with us as people as much as we would paint this life and says this is what I want to experience in this world it seems as though there are other forces that are opposed to that experience and so as much as we crave that as much as we want that the reality is is that we wake up in a world each day and we're reminded of the brokenness And sometimes the reminders of that brokenness, the reminders of that depravity, the reminders of of, of the opposition against us are so much that it leaves us in silence and sometimes even in tears. And so even as we celebrate you as graduates, even as we we look out and we say, congratulations, you have finished this great milestone, you're on to the next one, whatever that may be. I know that many of you do it with a heaviness in your heart. You do it with a heaviness because you look out at a world and you wonder, what's it going to be like? We look at what happened in Texas this week and we see that 19 children are gone and two teachers and we're like, this is the world? I crave the love, I crave the joy, I crave the peace, I crave the patience, the kindness, the goodness, the gentleness, the faithfulness, the self-control and this is what I have and so we have this craving and yet it seems like there are forces opposed to us and so we're left in this wrestling, we're left in this battle of this is the life I crave yet this is the life I experience. Why is it there's so much opposition to what you and I crave and what we long for? And then the wisest among us and the wisest watching online know that the reason why there's so much opposition is because there really is a force that's opposed to the very best of what you and I crave and what you and I long for. Jesus is teaching his uh, disciples, and he's speaking about um, a thief, and he says that there's a thief who comes to steal and to kill and to destroy. This is John 10, 10, by the way. There's a thief that comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I have come that you might have life, and you might have life in all of its fullness, life overflowing, life abundant, life at its best. when I think of a life that's at its best, a life of fullness, I think of those things like perfect love and perfect peace and perfect joy and and a perfect goodness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control. And and if you've been journeying with Jesus for some time, you know that those colors on the canvas aren't original to me or to you. They come straight from God himself. Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 through 23 tell us that the fruit of the Spirit, that life of fullness that God creates in us is one characterized by love and joy and peace and patience and kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. And against those things, there is no law. This is what we crave. Who who, who wants to stand in the way of that? The answer is there's an enemy who wants to stand in the way of that. Instead of giving life, he wants to destroy it. And instead of Giving to you, he wants to steal from it. If you were to rewind before the fruit of the Spirit, you would see and read Paul writing about this opposition that stands against that which we ultimately desire and crave. He says the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit. And he goes on to describe the life of the opposition. The acts of the flesh are obvious, sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, wild living, reckless living, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I would bet if you look to the world where there's an absence of the love and the joy and the peace and the patience and the kindness and the goodness and the gentleness and the faithfulness and the self-control that we crave, if you find those places of pain that stand opposed to that, you will probably find one of these. If you were to look into that school in Texas, you would find a hatred that overtook someone and resulted in horrific acts of violence. And if you monitor your own life and the world around us when we see those stories of brokenness in the headlines, the the big bold stories at the top of the feed and the little ones at the bottom of the feed, chances are those pain points come from here. There is this very real opposition to what we crave we're told that this force, this enemy, this opposition has a name. Uh, the opposition goes by several names or descriptors in scripture. Uh, we hear the opposition referred to as the enemy. Uh, the opposition referred to as the devil. In fact, first Peter chapter five, verse eight tells us that our enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. He stalks and stands to pounce upon the life that we were created for and that God made us for. Uh, We're told in John chapter eight, verse 44, that not only is he the devil and is he an enemy, but he is the father of lies. Like he is the master of deception. Uh, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 11:14 14, that the enemy, the devil, masquerades as an angel of light. Perhaps you've seen a movie or you've read a book about a masquerade ball, and, and what do they do in a masquerade ball? People wear masks that keep you from seeing their true identity. And so the enemy, the devil, masquerades. He hides his true identity. He's a master manipulator, a master deceiver, one who is opposed to God's best for you. He doesn't want you to experience love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control but he 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 portrays himself as someone who will offer those things but they're just really poor substitutes so he's the enemy he's the devil he's the father of lies and even in his name satan which is our what they call a transliteration where we borrow a combination of the original language and then uh, make it into english Uh, the hebrew word for satan though means adversary he's opposed He's opposed to what God wants for you. And so we look at this life, we look at this cravings that we have, the the colors that we want to paint on our canvas as we map our life. And again, within those colors, there are details that are probably nuanced to you and your interests and your desires. But we we look at what we desire and we see this opposition that stands opposed. And it's because there is one who is opposed to the very best of what God intends for you as a human being in this world. And when you chart the story of humanity, when you read a portion of that story in Scripture, you see that at every turn, the enemy is opposed to God's best. It starts in the garden. God creates this perfect place, this wonderful place for his human beings, Adam and Eve. And as they're living in there, he gives them you know, these just very simple commands, don't eat from this tree. If you do, you'll die. And when they get near that tree, the enemy, who is opposed to God, tries to convince them that God doesn't want what's best for them and tries to oppose the life that God intends. And if you read the rest of the story of humanity, both in scripture and outside of scripture, you'll see people who can't experience the very best of what God wants because there is someone opposed. That someone tempts and leads other peoples to join him in his work and it keeps people from experiencing the very best of what God intends. And so it shouldn't surprise us as we teach through Ezra and Nehemiah As God is trying to author this incredible comeback story in his people, this is an incredible work he's doing. It's part of his incredible rescue plan, his redemption plan. He's bringing his people back to Jerusalem. They'll reestablish themselves, we saw last week, so that eventually Jesus comes and he'll not only save God's people, but he'll save all people who will trust and follow him and believe in him and turn to him. And so in this great work that God wants to do, it shouldn't surprise us that there is evidence of opposition. It shows up in both Ezra and Nehemiah. Uh, We're gonna look mostly at Nehemiah today because it shows up in full force there um, on, on multiple pages in the first six chapters of the book. But as we look at that opposition, what we're going to see is that the enemy uses the same tactics, the same tactics he's used since the beginning the same tactics he used throughout the history of his people on into the New Testament, even some of the tactics he used when he tempted Jesus in the wilderness, the same tactics that even Paul writes about in Ephesians 6 when he talks about the battle that we're in, and it's the same tactics he uses to this day. And my hope is that as we just kind of blitz through Nehemiah a little bit, Nehemiah chapter four primarily, that you'll just get acquainted again with the strategies and the schemes and the tactics of our enemy, and that you'll get a plan for how to combat those so that you can experience This life that we crave of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. So if you have your Bibles, find Nehemiah um, chapter 4. As you're turning there, just to give you a brief history, uh, we're going to look first at verses 7 and 8. And I don't need the verses on the screen yet, but it will talk about some enemies of God's people. Those enemies that are going to be named we're going to read about uh, actually show up earlier in Nehemiah. Just to give you a little bit of history, Nehemiah chapter 2 uh, Nehemiah, you may recall, um, is burdened by the plight of Jerusalem and his people. He knows it's a city that should declare the glory of God. And it lies in ruins. And so he is motivated. He is stirred by God through prayer to do something on behalf of God and his people. And so he goes before the king and he says, hey, I would love it if you would allow me to go back and restore and rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And Artaxerxes, to his surprise, says, you know what, you got it. And how about I supply what you need to rebuild those walls? And so he sends letters on ahead of Nehemiah to the provinces of the trans-Euphrates area where Jerusalem is to convince them to take some of what they have to help Jerusalem be rebuilt. And as those governors of those lands hear about it, they don't like that idea. In in, in Nehemiah 2.10, even before Nehemiah gets to Jerusalem, we read that Sambalot the Horonite from Samaria, Tobiah the Ammonite from the lands to the east, when they heard about this, they were very much disturbed that someone had come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. Guess what? If Israel gets better, if God's people regain their strength, guess who loses their influence? Sambalot and Tobiah and the people around. By the time Nehemiah arrives in Jerusalem, we get to the end of chapter two. Sambalot, Tobiah have added to their number a man named Geshem, who we're told is an Arab, the land of the south. Again, they stand opposed, united against what God's work is going to be in Jerusalem. So we get to Nehemiah chapter four. The wall project's been ongoing. They see the wall going up, and we read this statement, Nehemiah chapter four, verses seven and eight. But when Sambalot, Tobiah, the Arabs, The Ammonites and the people of Ashdod. Now we've added the people to the west. When they heard that the repairs to Jerusalem's walls had gone ahead and that the gaps were being closed, they were very angry. They all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and stir up trouble against it. So we have enemies opposed to God's work continuing. Jerusalem wants to be restored. Let's promote this life that God intends for people. No, we want to destroy this work. We even get more insight into Sambalot's mind in the early part of chapter four. Look at verses one and two. When Sambalot heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and was greatly incensed. He ridiculed the Jews, and in the presence of his associates in the army of Samaria, he said, what are those feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life from the heaps of rubble, burned as they are? He references the burnt ruins of Jerusalem. This is now 150 years since Nebuchadnezzar has destroyed Jerusalem by fire. And Sambalot says, look, do they think that they can rise from the ashes? Do they think that they can rebuild? Do they think that they can make a comeback? He is opposed to the comeback that God is authoring in the life of his people. Now, it would be really easy for us to say, okay, in this situation, Sambalot, Tobiah, Geshem, the others, they are the real enemy. But if we look a little closer, we see that they're not the real enemy. The ultimate enemy is the enemy. Satan, the devil at work. If you don't believe me, I want you to turn to Zechariah. Zechariah chapter three. We call it a minor prophet. We don't read from it very often, but if you read in the story of the rebuilding of the temple in Ezra, it tells us that as that temple project came to a stop because of opposition, um, it tells us that God raised up two preachers, two teachers, Haggai and Zechariah, to come and to encourage the people. And so God speaks through them and look at how God encourages Zechariah. Look at the vision he gives him, part of what was preached to the people. In Zechariah chapter 3. So again, going back even before Nehemiah, you want to see who's really behind the opposition? Here's what Zechariah sees in his vision given to him by the Spirit of God. Zechariah 3:1. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest. If you read in Ezra 4, 5, 6, you'll read that Joshua is the high priest. He represents God before the people. So he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and who? And Satan, standing at his right side to accuse him. What is Satan doing? Standing opposed, an adversary. The Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this man a burning stick snatched from the fire? is not this man, is not Joshua, the one who God's going to use to bring light, to help lead the people, to help the people. And so even as we see in Ezra, you can read in Ezra chapter four about the temple project coming to a stop, people discouraging. We're gonna read a passage from there in just a moment. We know that ultimately what stands behind the opposition are not these people, but the enemy who's standing to oppose what God wants to accomplish in the lives of his people and the lives of this world. The real enemy... Is the enemy, if I were to put this on paper and actually it's how I have it written in my notes, I have the real enemy, lowercase e, is the enemy, all capital. It's the devil, it's Satan. That's who our real enemy is. And why is that important to us? If you and I are, are, are recognizing we're in this battle, there's a life that we crave characterized by things like love and joy and peace and patience and kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control and, and all those things that resonate with our hearts and resonate with the heart of God. And yet we see a world and we experience it and we see that these things are, are really hard to come by and, 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 and they're really difficult, we need to understand that this enemy is against that. And he'll use other people. He'll use the sambalots, he'll use the Tobias. But the ultimate enemy is not Sambalot and Tobiah. When you face ridicule from people, when you face difficult people in your life who hurt you and discourage you and harm you, the real enemy is not them. It's the enemy. Don't believe me? What does Paul say in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12? For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against two. Against the rulers and the principalities of darkness, the evil forces in the heavenly realms. Let me read it directly for you. It says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. See, one of the enemy's greatest schemes is to get us distracted. He wants us to think it's that person, it's that political party, it's that candidate. It's that coworker who bothers you. But the real enemy is the enemy. He's the one that stands opposed to the work that God wants to do in you and through you and to keep you from experiencing all those things we've talked about, that love, the joy, the peace, and so on. As we continue in Nehemiah 4, we see just three, I think, of the common tactics this real enemy uses. And they're not all of his tactics, they're not all of his schemes, they're not all of his strategies, but they're just just a few uh, the first is that the enemy commonly uses discouragement to keep his people from continuing in God's work. If you look at Nehemiah four, we're gonna pick on Tobiah for a minute, verse three. So Tobiah the Ammonite who is at his side, at the side of Sambalot said, what they are building, even a fox climbing up on it would break down their wall of stones. Um, this is essentially a your mama joke before there were your mama jokes, all right? So, so Tobiah looks at this wall that people have been working really hard on, and he says that even if a fox, one of the most nimble, most elusive, most light-footed creatures were to jump on it, it would crumble and fall. Essentially, your wall is so jank that even a fox would knock it down, all right? He he, he taunts them. He he discourages them. And the word discouragement is not used here, but that's what's happening. He's ridiculing the people. Why? Because if he can get them to say, you know what, yeah, we're doing a terrible job, then maybe they'll stop. And what happens later, if we were to look at verse 11, that they they taunt them even more. Before they know it or see us, we will be right right there among them and we'll kill them. They're using their words to discourage them. In chapter 6, Sambalot and and Geshem will write letters to Nehemiah using words to discourage. It's the same tactic that we see show up in Ezra. In Ezra chapter four, when the temple project years before comes to a stop, look at what happens. Ezra 4.4, then the peoples around them set out to discourage the people of Judah and make them afraid to go on building. One of the ways they did, if you read on to verse five, is they bribed some of the officials to frustrate the plans, hey, you know, you got to get your permit to build the temple. Let's, let's tell them that they don't have the right materials. Let's, I mean, that would be a modern day example. But the whole idea is that they're discouraging the people and they use words and they use actions. I want you to think about your desire to experience this life of joy and peace and all the other things we've mentioned. What sometimes stops you from continuing to pursue God's best in your life? Is it not someone who discourages you and says you can't? or they question your motives, they spread false things about you, or they manipulate and they they try to stop you in some way. The enemy's tactics remain the same. He loves to discourage God's people through words and through the actions of other people. But ultimately the real enemy is the enemy. Not only does he like to discourage, he loves to sow seeds of doubt. Look at verses 10 through 12 as the forces of Samaria and others kind of surround Jerusalem as they issue these taunts. Look at what happens in the hearts of the people. Meanwhile, the people in Judah said, the strength of the laborers is giving out and there is so much rubble that we cannot rebuild the wall. Also, our enemies said, before they know it or see us, we will be right there among them and we'll kill them and put an end to the work. When the Jews who lived near them came and told us 10 times over, Wherever you turn, they will attack us. Do you feel the doubt and the fear building? When you know that someone has doubts, don't they just repeat themselves again and again? Ten times over, something bad's gonna happen. We can't do this. We can't continue. We can't finish. How many times has the enemy dissuaded us from continuing God's purposes, pursuing the purest forms of love and joy and peace? By sowing seeds of doubt. And maybe even this week, some of the seeds of doubt are, is God really still sovereign? Is God really still working in all things to the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes? If things like what happened in Texas can happen. If I can still go to the doctor and there's still cancer. If, and the list goes on and on and on. And so the enemy sowed seeds of doubt. The final strategy I just wanna point out is that the enemy loves to distract us. If you turn over to Nehemiah 6, when those strategies give out, the enemies come up with a new one. Here's what verses two through four say. Sambalot and Geshem sent me this message. Come, let us meet together in one of the villages on the plain of Ono. And by the way, if you're invited by enemies to a place called Ono, (laughs) probably think twice. Come let us meet together in one of the villages on the plain of Ono. But they were scheming to harm me, so I sent messengers to them with this reply. I am carrying on a great project and cannot go down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and go down to you? Four times they sent me the same message, and each time I gave the same answer. Sam and Geshem were saying, hey, come see us. Hey, stop the work. And Nehemiah knows that he is doing a great work and if he were to step down, the work would cease. At the very least, the project would cease for a period of time. At the very worst, he would be killed and then who would lead? And so the enemy is using people to distract and one of the enemy's primary schemes remains distractions for us. We live in a world of unprecedented opportunities and unprecedented things to stimulate us. Think about the stimulants that are around. Text messages, notifications, new series to binge watch. Think about the number of emails you get a day. Think about the number of of places you can go and people you can hang out with. Think about the number of opportunities, new travel teams, new sports to try, new hobbies to enjoy, and the list goes on and on. And many of these stimulants and many of these opportunities inherently aren't bad or evil, But what happens is we get so caught up in chasing the next thing and responding to the next thing. We go, 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 and we do, do, do. And what happens is we lose sight of what matters most. We don't cultivate the inner restful spirit of resting in Christ and and growing in him. Our family right now is reading through a book called The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. And as I was preparing for this, I was just reminded of these words. Page 26 of the book, Here's, here's what it says. Today... A number of historical circumstances are blindly flowing together and accidentally conspiring to produce a climate within which it is difficult not just to think about God or to pray, but simply to have an interior depth whatsoever. We, for every kind of reason, good and bad, are distracting ourselves into spiritual oblivion. It is not that we have anything against God, depth, and spirit. We would like these. It's just that we are habitually too preoccupied to have any of these show up on our radar screens. We are more busy than bad, more distracted than non-spiritual, more interested in the movie theater, the sports stadium, the shopping mall, and the fantasy life they produce in us than we are in church. Pathological busyness, distraction, and restlessness are major blocks today within our spiritual lives. One of the enemy's most common strategies remains, if I can get people distracted even by things that are good, but are lesser than the best, uh, then perhaps people will stop pursuing the very best of what God has for them, and what we see in Nehemiah—just these simple strategies of discouragement and sowing seeds of doubt and distraction—we can look and we see they've been the strategies of the enemy since the beginning. The enemy in the garden. Did God really say seeds of doubt, seeds of distraction? What about Jesus? The the temptation in the wilderness. The enemy takes him to a high place and he says, look, at all the kingdoms of the world, they can be yours if you will what? If you will bow down and worship me. Get captivated by what you can have and who you can be and lose sight of what God has called you to be. Seeds of discouragement. What about Elijah who goes up on the mountain and through faith calls down fire on the pagan offering? and then hours later is huddling underneath a scraggly bush, scared of the queen. Discouragement. And I would bet if you look at your life and the life that you dream of, the love, the joy, the peace, the patience, kindness, the goodness, the gentleness, the faithfulness, self-control, and, and however that looks as you fulfilled in its purest forms for God, what so often keeps you from that is an enemy who is opposed. He discourages, he so seeds the doubt, And he distracts. But if you look at Nehemiah, he overcomes. If you look at the the people in Ezra, they still build the temple. How do they overcome? What is their plan to combat these common, effective strategies of the enemy? And for that, I just want to give you the word plan. And I want to walk you through it. If you look at Nehemiah chapter 4, you'll see when the enemies come at them, Nehemiah pauses and he comes up with a very specific plan he actually has the workers divide into groups they'll take shifts he encourages those that are even working to have tools in one hand and weapons in another he's intentional with his plan but we see even more than that in the life of nehemiah he's intentional in how he approaches the opposition the p and plan would be this prayer We've already talked about prayer previously in this series. But if you look at Nehemiah at every turn, even in chapter four, following verses seven and eight, when Sambalot, Tobiah, the Arabs, the, the Ashdodites, when they come and they surround and they discourage and they threaten, what does verse nine have? But we prayed. Again and again and again, we see Nehemiah turn to prayer to combat the opposition. What's prescribed for us in Ephesians as we look at the armor of God? If you look at Ephesians chapter six, verse 18. Following the description of the armor, he says, and pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. So how do you combat? How do you stand up against the discouragement and the doubt and the distraction? We have to be people who pray. We have to use spiritual weapons to combat spiritual warfare. We have to pray. What's the L? We have to listen to God's words. If you look to Ezra, what allowed the people to overcome? They listened to Zechariah, they listened to Haggai. If you read the words of Zechariah, Zechariah chapter four, it's where those famous words are. It's not by power or by might, but my spirit says the Lord Almighty, which, by the way, is the same phrase. that's translated Lord of Heaven's Armies. You look to Haggai, who is also prophesying. Haggai chapter 2, it tells us that the Lord of hosts will help you. It's the words that they listened, they could trust. Well, what allows Nehemiah to stand firm and continue with the project, even in the face of opposition? He believes in what God has said. Do you remember what the sword is that we have in the armor of God? The sword of the Spirit, which is what? The word of God, we need his words to combat the lies. Again, we need spiritual weapons to combat a spiritual war. There's opposition. If you want to combat the discouragement and the doubt and the distraction, remain in his promises. The A, anticipate the opposition. I think sometimes because of the comforts we've been afforded in our country, um, we think that maybe there'll come a day when it just gets easy. But here's the story of God's people throughout history is that it's never easy. If you're waiting for easy, if you're waiting for comfortable, it's not gonna come this side of Christ's return. Jesus himself tells us that, John 16, In this world, you will have what? Trouble. But take heart, why? Because he has overcome the world. I remember reading years ago as I was beginning ministry and I would be just deflated when things would not go according to plan on a youth trip. A flat tire would occur, or a, a kid would punch someone in the face. I'm like, why can't we just have a great trip? And, and I read in, in Henry Cloud's book called Integrity, and he says one of the ways that you can operate with more integrity and, and just kind of maintain who you know God wants you to be in the midst of crisis is that you have to anticipate that things will go wrong. And you know, when I started planning trips and I started doing things with kids and going to camp, when I would anticipate, yep, something's probably gonna go wrong. Guess what didn't deflate me anymore? Yeah, something went wrong. Because that's life, there's opposition. If you and I will anticipate that things will be difficult, it gives us this odd and weird strength in the midst of it. So pray and listen to his word and anticipate the opposition. And then finally, nurture relationships. When you look at Nehemiah, whether it's going out in chapter two to survey the destruction in Jerusalem, he takes a close group of people with him. When they stand with tools in one hand and weapons in the other, guess what? They're standing together, other people. In our independent country, we convince ourselves sometimes that we can follow God and we can pursue the very best that he has for us in isolation, and that is a lie from the father of lies. We need one another to pursue Jesus. We need one another to stay faithful. We have to have the accountability and the encouragement that come from other people. That's why Paul spends so much time as he writes the churches in the New Testament, living in eras that are so difficult under rulers that oppress the church that they should comfort one another, pray for one another, encourage one another, love one another, admonish one another. That they need to be with one another. Why is it that when the church is being persecuted in the book of Acts, we see them meeting together daily? What? With each other. In homes, there's something that happens as we nurture relationships with one another. We can combat the lies and schemes of the enemy. How many of us have been in circumstances where we think we're doing something good and someone is honest enough and loves enough to say, hey, listen, you better check your motivations. Like, I think think you're not being honest with yourself. And how has that helped us and saved us from other harm and, and, and difficulty? We have a real enemy, but God has given us a plan and the final thing I would say with nurture relationships is nurture relationships also with people who are not yet followers of Jesus. Because guess what, the is opposed to them. And what happens when they experience these huge gaps and these huge holes where there is no love and joy and peace. Who's gonna share, that, share with them and show them there's something more? If the church doesn't step up when innocent children are killed, how do those families know that there's enough hope to take a step forward one more day. See, knowing there's an enemy should be this call to disciples of Jesus to be serious about investing in the lives of other people to help them experience him as well. Knowing that that enemy is real, but there's a God that's even greater. Our enemy's powerful, that's the reality. But he's not more powerful than our God. If you remember the curse of Uh, the garden when uh, the enemy uh, tempts Adam and Eve and they sin, it tells us the offspring of the woman will crush the serpent's head. And that means that all that's happening right now, all the power the enemy has right now is he's just thriving in pain in his death pain that ultimately Christ has overcome. So let's have hope as we face opposition. Let's lean into him. Let's keep our plan. Let's pray. Let's listen to his word. Let's anticipate the opposition. Let's nurture relationships. Let's face these schemes and tactics of the enemy and let's overcome. What walls does he want you to build? What temples does he want you to build? What work is he calling you to that you can persevere in? What canvas will you paint? What life will you live that's full of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control? Together we can do that. And if you don't know that hope, if you haven't experienced that life, we would invite you to explore it. There's only one name under heaven by which you can experience rescue and salvation, and that's the name of Jesus. And he offers that to all of us who will respond to him in faith, repenting of our sin, confessing him as Lord, and entering into his life in baptism, and he renews us and makes us whole. And if you wanna make that step, we'd encourage you to To respond through the connection cards, scan the QR codes that say let's connect, email us connect at lebanonchristian.org, have a conversation at the front of the room. But let's together combat the enemy and let's experience that life that God's made us for. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your timeless words. I thank you for words of hope. I thank you for words filled with purpose. I pray, God, that you would help us to pursue that life of fullness that you would not allow the thief to steal, kill, and destroy, that we would stand against the opposition, that we would use the, the plan that you have given, that we will be drawn into your life. Guide us in this, Father, and it's in your name we pray. Amen.